0: Please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Continuing our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. This morning we come to chapter 6, the second half of that chapter. I'll pick up the reading in verse 12. Please give your full attention to the word of God. It is inerrant and it is powerful to change your life. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Never! whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Last fall, the New Yorker magazine published an article that had an eye-catching title. The title was Heirs to the Sexual Revolution. Here's the first paragraph from that article. It would seem to be a pretty confusing time to be a college student, at least as far as sex is concerned. The sexual revolution has been won, and many campuses resemble great drunken Bacchanals in which men and women can choose to participate in no strings attached and experimentations in lust. Sex without stigma or shame. And yet, at the same time, News about the high incidence of rape have reached a fever pitch, leaving students, not to mention their parents, worried about their safety. College sex is both a playland and a minefield. I came across that in my research this week and also came across several different surveys that of different campuses all over the country that said the numbers are pretty consistent, that about one in five women on campus will be sexually assaulted while they're on the campus. One in five. Some of the surveys were one in four. I hate to say it, but I was at the tail end of that generation that started the sexual revolution back in the 60s and 70s. And this article is showing us what the heirs of that sexual revolution have received. The article says, we won the sexual revolution. If you ask me, we've lost it badly. We haven't even begun to assess the damage, deep internal damage as well as external damage. But I want to make it clear that this generation of students, this generation of young people, are not any more sinful than we were. Sinners are sinners in every generation. It's just that what's happened over the course of the last generation is that systematically and increasingly rapidly the restraints of God's common grace have been systematically dismantled, dispersed, done away with. So that there's almost no external pressure to help Keep sexual sin from taking hold in a powerful way. I remember when I was going to college, the big scandalous controversy on college campuses was called co-ed dorms. Remember those? They'd have a women's floor, then a men's floor, then a women's floor, totally separate from one another, but they were in the same building. And that was the big, oh, look at how what our culture's come to, that they have co-ed dorms. And now co-ed dorm rooms are becoming the norm. We have access to pornography that my generation of men could have never dreamed of when we were young men. I shudder to think how much more deeply I would have been ensnared in that sin if I had the ability it, It. 18, 20, 22, 24, to just click a button and have any kind of pornography I could possibly imagine in front of me instantaneously. I wouldn't even have to go to, don't even have to go to my computer for that. I can carry it around in my pocket on my iPhone. I shudder to think how sinful I would be. And so I say this not with judgmentalism, but with deep grief and remorse for where we've come to and what my generation has contributed to it. But I'm not here this morning to talk about how bad the sexual culture on campus is. That's not my purpose, because that's not what 1 Corinthians 6 is about. 1 Corinthians 6 is about the problem of sex in the church. Sexual practice in the church. So that's what we're addressing here. Remember back in chapter 5? Paul addressed the scandalous sin in the church in Corinth that was being ignored at best, condoned at worst. A sin that would be scandal even in this culture, sin of incest. You remember how Paul ended that passage? The challenge, the the rebuke and the challenge he laid before the church. He wasn't addressing the man committing incest in that chapter. He was rebuking the church, and this is what he says at the end of chapter 5 verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And then the beginning of chapter 6, remember the last verses we looked at, the end of last week, where Paul talks about The church, he's basically saying the church must not be characterized by unrepentant sexual sin. Verse 9 of chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Unrepentant sexual sin is not to characterize the people of God, it must not be tolerated in the church. And the point of this whole section is found at the beginning of verse 18 where Paul says simply to the church in Corinth, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. Don't just suppress it. Don't just repress it. Don't just avoid it. Flee from it. But how do we do that? We seem so powerless in the face of this overwhelming temptation that rips at us every day. Well, you'd think that writing to Christians, it it should be enough just to quote the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And then to expound upon that and show that that commandment covers all sin that is outside the boundaries of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman for a lifetime. That should be enough to say, this is what God's word says, this is the law of God, so obey it. But it isn't enough, is it, for any of us to just have somebody say, don't do it. Reminds me of a, one of my favorite Bob Newhart skits. Bob Newhart usually played a psychologist, not just in this TV show, but in many of his skits. And in this one, I know a lot of you know this one, he meets with a woman who comes to him with the problem of claustrophobia. She says, I have panic attacks every, th- every time I'm in an enclosed space because I can't keep myself from thinking about being buried alive in a box. And so Bob Newhart says to her, okay, well, here's how I work. You get five minutes, you pay $5 for five minutes, and then it's free after that. But most people, almost everybody's done after five minutes. And she says, wow, that sounds great. Let's try it. So he said, well, go ahead, explain your problem. So she went and listed lots of situations where she has this panic attack when she fears being buried alive in a box. And he listens to her very patiently, and when she finishes, he says, okay, Now, I'm going to give you two words of advice. I want you to memorize these words, and I want you to go out and apply them to your life. She says, okay, that sounds great. He says, okay, you ready? Stop it! (laughs) And she's stunned like deer in the headlights. What do you mean, stop it? No, stop it, just stop it. And so she starts giving excuses, but I can't because of this. Stop it! That's his whole advice for the next two minutes. Just stop it. You have to look up the video. I won't give you the ending. It's pretty funny. It's, uh, that skit is a favorite of all my pastor friends. We pass it along among each other. You don't know how often we wish people coming to us with their sin issues, you just wish, as Richard said a couple weeks ago, you just say, stop it. Just, just cut it out. But Paul doesn't ever do that, does he? Paul doesn't ever just say stop it when he addresses a sin. He never does that. Because Paul's a shepherd. And he knows our nature. He knows our needs. Over in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, you know these verses. These are familiar verses. But maybe you don't apply them directly enough to the use of your body. Because that's the specific focus. Listen to this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, or some translations say reasonable worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, the word of God appealing to your corrupted willpower is not enough to get you out of this sin what has to happen is you need to be transformed by the word of God through the renewing of your mind and I've always said this to people they're struggling with sexual sin is you've got to draw the line in the sand in your mind not in your actions because if you wait until those sinful lustful thoughts display themselves in your actions, you've already lost the battle. That's what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount. If you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You've got to fight the battle in your mind. It's about how you think. What Paul is saying is, is if the word of God can transform your mind so that you think rightly about who you are, who God is, and what that means for how you live your life, especially in relation to sexual sin, then that will begin to change your desires. It's because without having your mind changed, you're not going to have your desires changed and you'll be a slave to your desires. But the way to get lordship over your desires, to get control over your desires, is to be transformed or renewed in your mind so that your desires change, which then produces changed behavior. And so... That's how Paul addresses it. He doesn't just say to the Corinthians, stop it. He gives them a theology lesson. And I can imagine some frustration at first. You know, what do you, Come on, you're talking abstracts here, Paul. I need help to repent of my sexual sin. Paul is saying here that in order to get self-control in this key area of your life, to flee sexual sin... You have to have a deeper understanding of who you are as God made you and who you are by the grace of God through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Gordon Fee, a scholar and commentator, says about this passage that it's one of the most important passages in the Bible on the human body. The theology of the human body. The practical application of the word of God to the human body. This is one of the most important passages in scripture. Scripture. Body image, gender identity, these are hot button issues. These are hot topics in our culture. The problem is, is that people are not looking to the word of God for the answer. They're looking to their feelings. You don't resolve issues of body image or gender identity or anything to do with your sexuality. You don't resolve it by looking inside your own corrupt heart and consulting with your feelings. The answer is found in the word of the one who designed us and the one who redeemed us. That's what Paul is trying to say to us. So first of all, what Paul says in this passage is, in order to think rightly about your body so that you will not commit sexual sin, you need to find your body's freedom in Christ. The freedom that is in Christ. He quotes a saying in verse 12. matter of fact, he quotes it twice. You'll notice in the English translations there's quote marks around it. It says all things are lawful or some translations all all things are permissible for me. It's important that you understand that those quote marks aren't in the original Greek. The original Greek New Testament Greek doesn't have quote marks so that's an interpretation. But what it signifies is likely to be true which is that Paul is not originating that statement, what he's doing is he's quoting something that had been reported to him that was being said in the Corinthian church over and over and over. All things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. And so Paul quotes this slogan that's being thrown around in the Corinthian church as a justification for their behavior, which was sinful. And he quotes it and he responds to it. And probably it's not hard to put two and two together to think that this slogan, all things are lawful to me, is a corruption of what Paul taught when he was there, which is that we are saved by grace, not by works. We are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, and we are under grace then for salvation, for our acceptance to God, not under works, that our works do not gain us entrance into the kingdom of God or into the family of God. It's something that's given to us by grace alone. You can see how that gospel truth which is at the core of the gospel could and has been throughout the history of the church misused, abused, distorted to say well then what difference does it make what works we do? It's a common question in the history of the church. If Christ died on the cross, and paid completely for every sinful thought, word, and deed that I have ever committed in the past, that I am committing in the future, and uh, in the present, and that I will commit in the future, if he died for all those sins and paid them in full, then what does it matter how I live? Can't I just go ahead and live my old life the way I always lived it? I think that's what's behind this slogan that Paul's quoting. All things are lawful for me because I'm under grace, not under law. Well, Paul counters it by saying, quoting it, all things are lawful for me. There is a sense, he says, in which you have freedom in Christ, but not the kind of freedom you're talking about. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. He says, you see, we are saved from sin we are saved from the power of sin the gospel transforms our nature from selfishness and self-destructiveness towards loving God and loving our neighbor that's what the gospel does to us if you're born again you've gotten a new heart and that heart has a desire to love God and love your neighbor to do good to others to build up others and the implication here is clear Sexual sin is harmful. Sexual sin is always harmful, even when nobody else knows about it, even when you don't see the obvious damage in your life. Sexual sin is always harmful to you, to your partner, if there's a partner involved, and to every other relationship in your life, especially your relationship with the Lord. It's harmful, not helpful. Let me take you back to that passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we read earlier. Listen carefully to what Paul says about sexual sin here. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has called us, not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Sexual sin transgresses and wrongs your brother in addition to the damage it does to you. It is inherently selfish. Secondly, Paul says, All things are lawful for me. Yes, I'm free in Christ. But I will not be enslaved by anything. I love that phrase. When I apply it to this area of life especially. I will not be enslaved by anything. I have been freed by Christ. Our freedom in Christ isn't freedom to sin. Our freedom in Christ is freedom from guilt. Freedom from shame. Freedom from the power of sin, from the power of death, from the power of Satan. That's what it's freedom from. It's freedom to love God and to love my neighbor. That's true freedom. The law that God gives in every area of life, but especially in the area of sexual purity, the laws that are given are the boundaries where things are joyful and good and great and pleasurable and honoring to God and outside of the boundaries of the law is where there is danger and damage and self-destruction and ultimately the darkness of hell. And so the freedom we have in Christ is the freedom to be able to stay within the boundaries where sex is good and pleasurable and right and honoring to God, which is inside the confines of a covenant of marriage between a man and a woman for life. That's freedom. Freedom. You know, Christians often ignore the context of that phrase. You know that phrase, we are not under law, but under grace? Did you ever read the context of that? Let me take you back there, Romans 6 for a second. Romans 6, beginning in verse 12. This is the context of we are not under the law, but we are under grace. Verse 12, "...let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions." Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Do you see how those who say that we're free to live any way we want to live are actually turning that whole passage on its head and saying the opposite of what Paul is saying? It's because we're under grace that we are not under the dominion and slavery of sin. We are free to obey. And I tell you, the kind of slavery I have seen to sexual sin in my own life and in the lives of others, people I've counseled, people in my family, the the slavery to that sin of sexual sin is deeper, more profound, more deeply damaging to the soul than any other kind of addiction. That's why in Scripture, the writers of Scriptures do single out sexual sin. There is a sense in which the sin of pride or the sin of false teaching are worse sins in some ways than sexual sin. But there's another sense in which sexual sin is hideous because of what it does to our soul, what it does to our heart, what it does to our relationships. And that's why the writers of Scripture single it out as an important sin in the life of the church that must be, must be purged. Secondly, Paul says you need to not only find your body's freedom in Christ, you need to find your body's purpose in Christ. Look at verse 13. Again, we see there's quotes there. In other words, the translators think that this is a slogan that Paul is quoting from the church in Corinth. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food obviously comparing sexual appetite to the appetite we have for food. These things are natural. We're born hungering for food. We need food. And so these libertarians, these antinomians in Corinth were saying, we have this desire for sex. It must be right. It must be good to seek it, to seek satisfaction for it in whatever way, especially since we are under the cross. A lot of commentators think that the, quote should actually, the quotes in that verse, verse 13, should actually extend to the end of the sentence. In other words, they think that the slogan in Corinth actually included that last phrase, and God will destroy both the one and the other. And I don't know if that's true or not. Again, these quotes are all interpretive questions. But I think there's a good reason to think that, that it should go to the end of the statement because what's interesting is that statement, if you put it all together, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food and God will destroy both one and the other, that actually very well represents Greek philosophy and the Greek view of the human body. And you can understand how these Christians in that culture could, and we saw in chapters 1 and 2, they, worldly philosophy and thinking, worldly wisdom had been seeping into the church. And so it's very easy to believe that they were thinking like the Greeks think about the human body and misunderstanding its origin, its purpose, its value. Ancient Greek philosophy and the more contemporary Greek philosophy of the day, which was Gnosticism, they all taught that the human soul is immortal, that the human soul is who we are. This, This spiritual entity is really who we are but the soul is confined in a physical body. And at best, the body is an insignificant, meaningless shell, or in some forms of Greek philosophy, actually taught that the body was actually evil and needed to be escaped from by whatever means possible because it was the enlightenment of our soul, the progress of our soul, which was the idea of salvation in that philosophy. Well, you put that together with scripture, like the church in Corinth seemed to be doing, and they were basically saying the body's just not important. It doesn't matter what we do with the body. It's our soul. Our soul is saved by Christ. Our soul belongs to Christ. So what does it matter what we do with our bodies? In Greek culture, those who had that view, that, that, that wrong view of the human body, it's either an insignificant shell or an evil cell for the body, keeping it in, the soul imprisoned, or you know, if that's how they looked at it, they would do one of the two things. Either they would harshly treat the body with asceticism to try to separate, so to speak, their soul from the pleasures, the impulses of the body, or they'd go to the other extreme and they'd overindulge in physical, worldly pleasures because the body doesn't matter. And it sounds like the Corinthian Christians were falling into that second category. They're saying, my soul is saved, it's secure, it's in Christ, but my body really isn't important, so I can live any way I want to live. And they're using it saying, you know, like our body needs food, our stomach needs food for satisfaction, so our body also needs sexual pleasure. So it's right. And it shouldn't sound unfamiliar to us to have people say, if it feels so good, how can it be wrong? 30 years ago, The debate, I remember when homosexuality first began to take hold in our culture and gain acceptance in our culture, one of the subsequent battle lines was to say, well, are people born homosexual or are they made homosexual by their environment? It's funny, I don't hear that debate much anymore. Back then, that was kind of a crucial issue because the thinking was that if people are born with homosexual desires, therefore, it falls right into this argumentation, doesn't it? If it's natural to our bodies, therefore it must be right. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food. If we're born with homosexual desires, then how could it be wrong? And my response, even at the time, was but we're born adulterers. We're born fornicators. We're born thieves. We're born murderers. We have all kinds of sinful desires. The way that we are as fallen creatures is not what we were designed to be. We don't go within to find out what's true and right and good. We go to our creator, our designer. And there is something very, very seriously wrong with the sex instinct in this culture as it has been in almost every culture in the history of the world. C.S. Lewis described it this way. C.S. Lewis said, and he, he makes that same analogy with our appetites for food, with our appetites for sex. Listen to what he says. This is in Mere Christianity. There is nothing to be ashamed of in enjoying your food. There would be everything to be ashamed of if half the world made food the main interest of their lives and spent their time looking at pictures of food and dribbling and smacking their lips. If that's what you saw in the culture, if that's how people responded to food, then you'd say there is something seriously wrong with their appetite for food. Especially, as he says elsewhere in that chapter, if you knew from experience that these people were overindulgent to start with. I mean, it might make sense if people were starving. But what if people are fat and overindulgent and they're still looking at pictures of food all the time and dribbling and smacking their lips? The ways of nature are not where we look to to find out what's right and good. So Paul gives them a new slogan. Don't miss this. And notice how his slogan directly counteracts their slogan. If their slogan is stomach for the, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God's going to destroy them both, so live it up, live however we want to live, here's Paul's counteracting slogan for them to learn and memorize and apply. Beginning in verse 13 middle middle of the verse the body is not meant for sexual morality immorality but for the lord and the lord for the body and god raised the lord and will also raise us up by his power that's an exalted view of the human body is that the body of the believer is for the lord and the lord is for the body of the believer And the Lord has raised the body of his son Jesus Christ and that is the first fruits of our resurrection because he is raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead. You see, that's what's unique about Christianity in the view of the human body is that we understand because God has revealed it to be true to us that we are both body and soul. My soul is only part of who I am. My body is an important part of who I am. I am both body and soul. And the blood of Christ was shed on the cross to forgive and to renew both my body and my soul. And my eternal hope is in both my body and my soul. We are made in the image of God, both in body and soul. We have been living through several generations of authorities in our culture teaching that these bodies that we have are the result of an accidental collision of chemicals and random circumstances. And then we wonder why in the culture, in this culture, people don't value their bodies very much. We wonder why people find it so easy to degrade these bodies and use them in despicable ways. When we say together and affirm with one voice the words of the Apostles' Creed... And we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We are making a powerful statement about our future and the value of the body that God has given to us. It is eternal, it's in his image, and it's to be treated accordingly. Thirdly and lastly, we first of all find our freedom in Christ. We find our purpose of our body in Christ. Thirdly, we find our body's identity in Christ. Lots of talk these days about sexual identity. Well, look at verse 15. Paul alludes to one of the most important teachings in the New Testament. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Talk about sexual identity. My body is members of the body of Christ. This is, my body belongs to Christ. How's that for identity? Paul is alluding to here what theologian John Murray says is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, which is union with Christ. If you understand what union with Christ is in the New Testament, and particularly in the writings of Paul, you know the very heart of Paul's theology, and you know the very heart of the gospel. That when we put our faith in Christ, we're not just adding christ and his teachings and his ethics and his way of life to our life we are actually joining ourselves to christ in some very mystical but very real and concrete way verse 17 paul says he who is joined to the lord becomes one spirit with him but then he applies it directly to the body as well usually in the new testament the church is called the body of christ we corporately together are the body of christ But this is one of the unusual cases where Paul actually applies that doctrine to the individual believer. He says your body is the body of Christ. He says it in two ways. First of all, it's the body of Christ because the Spirit of Christ dwells within us. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are God's temple. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ dwells in you, That has to have huge implications for how you use the body that that he's given to you. Secondly, your body is the body of Christ because he bought it, he says. Verses 19 and 20. You are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He's alluding to what the Apostle Peter teaches in chapter 1 beginning in verse 17. Where Peter says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. If you understand the price that was paid for your body, you know how expensive your body is? It costs the blood of the Son of God. That's how precious your body is. That's how valuable your body is. How can you degrade such an expensive body? And do you see how this invalidates the slogans of our culture? My body, my choice. Keep your laws off my body. A believer cannot say that, it's not ours. God created our bodies as an integral part of who we are in his own image. Christ, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, redeemed our bodies with his blood, and now the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ, dwells within us. I guarantee you will not find a more exalted view of the human body anywhere in this fallen world than what's in Scripture. And I haven't even touched on what he says in verse 16, Look there, he quotes Genesis 2. He's going back to the original design, not just of the human body, but of the purpose of two bodies coming together and forming one flesh in marriage. He's talking about the original design and still the only design for sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. It has to happen in a lifelong covenant of marriage. That's where sex is Glorious, beautiful, pleasurable, and honoring to God and gives glory to God. And Paul then, in that light of that, he puts an image in front of these Corinthian Christians. He says, just think about what you're doing. Because there were some of those Corinthian Christians that were regularly visiting the plenitude of prostitutes that were both cultic prostitutes a part of the worship pagan worship as well as just pleasurable prostitutes in that city they were going back to them and he says do you realize what you're doing as a christian your body belongs to the lord it's this glorious image of god representation that has been redeemed by the blood of christ and you're forsaking what it was designed for in the covenant of marriage and you're taking and you're joining that body to the body of a prostitute and therefore you are taking the members of Christ and putting them into one body, one flesh with a prostitute. Are you not thoroughly disgusted by that image? And yet that's what every sinful act is. Do you understand what I'm saying? That how you think about your body and the way you use it affects your desires and therefore affects your behavior. Be renewed by the transforming of your mind so that you can gain control over these ravaging desires and feelings within you. Let me speak to those of you, and I'm sure I'm speaking to many even in this room, who are currently right now, engaged in some way in ongoing sexual sin. I will say it. Stop it. Nobody else in your life may be saying it. But I have to be faithful to the word of God. And the word of God says, stop it. But it doesn't just say stop it there's so much good news that comes along with that prohibition because the word of the Spirit of God and the Word of God are also offering to you complete, absolute forgiveness. In a moment. You don't have to go out and undo anything that you've done up to this point right now. All you have to do is confess that sin, agree with the Word of God it's wrong and be willing to turn from it and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are made clean Your shame and guilt are gone. And the God who created you and gave you that marvelous body looks at you and he sees a perfect child of God because you're robed in the righteousness of Christ. He can make you clean like no shower could ever make you clean to the very depths of your being. Secondly, the Spirit and the Word are also offering to you the strength to resist that powerful temptation that's enslaving you. Believe the gospel. Put your trust in Christ, and he promises you he'll give you the strength to resist temptation. I can't tell you how valuable that is. And thirdly and finally, the Spirit and the Word are offering you the transformation that comes from renewing your mind by the Word and the Spirit drawing you into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. I have fought sexual sin my entire life and I can tell you without any hesitation, I'm not there yet, but I do know that the answer to overcoming sexual sin is drawing so close to Jesus Christ that it becomes disgusting because I see it like he sees it. And you only draw near to Christ through the Spirit and the Word. That's how it happens. That's where you find your body's freedom, your body's purpose, and your body's identity in union with Christ. Let me close just by reading a verse, very familiar verse from Philippians 3, but again, maybe you never noticed the direct association to the body here. Paul talks about being saved by grace, and he talks about what his new life was now about. He says, "...that I may know him and the power of his resurrection." Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There's where victory over sexual sin is found. Let's pray. Father, I just grieve over the fact that we live not only in a church, in a world that has been decimated by sexual sin, but even a church that continues to be riddled with the effects of this lingering sin in our hearts and our lives. Lord, please drive us to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we might find forgiveness and healing. Thank you that that healing is promised there. And being healed, may our minds be renewed and may we be light in the midst of this dark and depraved world by your grace. We pray in Christ's name, amen.